90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hello, everybody. I'm John Lehman. And I'm Shannon Doolin. And I'm Nick Holshue. Hi, Nick. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you two? I'm doing pretty well. Yep, it's wonderful here today. <laughs> so yes, we've got our first guest on the show. This will be interesting for everybody involved. <laughs> it's a technological experiment on our technology show. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so we'll have Nick introduce himself and we'll chat with him a little bit about his work. But before we get to that, we have our first piece of listener feedback. Yay! (laughs) So this comes from Hannah, last name redacted, who is also a graduate student. And it is a New York Times article in response to our talking about using iPads and technology in education. So Shannon, do you want to tell us what it's about? Uh, Sure. So the article is titled, Can Students Have Too Much Tech? And this is obviously a conversation that I have a lot. We talked last week on the show. I was supposed to take my students out into the field and use iPads, and it turned out it rained all weekend. So that was an unexpected snafu with technology that I had not accounted for. Um, But this article in the New York Times is really interesting, and it focuses more on does tech help K through 12 students and less on you know, college-aged kids, but basically it says that no, especially in lower-income areas, tech is actually making students weaker academically. Yeah, it sounds like if you introduce tech at the, the wrong time, it's, it's just not the right tool. Uh, there's a place for it, but it seems like the novelty wears off kind of quickly, and then they just use iPads or whatever for YouTube and games and that kind of thing. <laughs> which, is, which is funny because they say, you know, adults would do this exact same thing, which is so true. But uh, that's, that's sort of what I took from it, too, this sort of clickbait headline of uh, can students have too much tech. But it's really K through 12, and specifically, like, middle school students. Um, it's a little different than what we do in college, I think. I feel like, John, that she wrote this just for you. And the quote from the article is, an unquestioned belief in the power of gadgetry has already led to educational snafus. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say that's definitely true. So, <laughs> Nick, you've had some experience teaching students in the field. Have you guys taken any kind of tech into the field with you, or have you gone old school? Yeah, we've mostly done things old school, although I know Penn State's field camp, they bring uh, laptops out in the field, and they do mapping on GIS which uh, I've heard actually mixed reviews about. So, uh, you know, it's hard for me to think about an analog during my own education because I remember when I was very young getting really excited when we got to use a computer, but that's when it was more of a novelty than it is today, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I recall that exact same thing. I remember, you know, the first cell phone was in college. So (laughs) those were novelties were super awesome. Do, Do they take the actual, do they just use GPS in the field and then come back and map it using GIS, I, or are they actually taking the computer out with them? You know, actually, I'm not totally sure. John, do you know? <laughs> I, I don't know what they do for the field well, camp here. I, we, I, should certain, we should certainly talk about that. I can't imagine them taking the entire laptop into the field, but maybe they do. It seems like a really good way to destroy some laptops, though, unless they're oh, yeah. yeah, Yeah, that's exactly what I thought, too. Yeah, even with the iPads. Yeah, yeah. I went and investigated, you know, getting the hardcore cases for the iPads, and they're prohibitively expensive. 
I mean, especially when I have, you know, 37 students, there's no way I'm spending my hard-earned money on laptop cases for them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's certainly a thing because last week before uh, we went out into the field, I went out and scouted and I took my laptop or my iPad with me and it just has a regular case, not like a tough book case or an OtterBox or anything. And uh, yeah, I already took a beating, so <laughs> I was being really careful. I can't imagine students with laptops and iPads that aren't theirs and how they treat them. So, well, I have a feeling that we're going to hear from Nick more on taking equipment and sometimes very expensive equipment <laughs> into very harsh environments today. <laughs> oh yeah, and if you need a lesson for Oklahoma, uh, most computers don't like negative twenty degree temperatures, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably something that you experience uh, well, a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that is true. Most students don't like positive twenty degree temperatures here, so <laughs> that's true. The, yeah, so, technology uh, doesn't like it. People don't like it. <laughs> yeah. No. So, Nick, what's your background for those that don't know you? So I uh, did my undergraduate at Carleton College in Minnesota, and I got uh, degrees in economics and geology there, actually. And uh, ultimately, I decided I wanted to go on in the geosciences, and so I came here to Penn State, where I'm pursuing my PhD in geophysics, uh, specifically glaciology. So I, my dissertation is on uh, the evolution of the West Antarctic Ice Sheet. Uh, that's really cool. And for people that don't know a lot about geology, there's actually a whole sect of geology called economic geology, but I'm guessing that's not what you were doing <laughs> at Carleton, right? No, it wasn't. Although it's <laughs> it's something that I had considered because it sounds like it would be a blending of economics and geology, but really it has very little economics. It's not. <laughs> it, that's, that's absolutely true. It's, yes, it's basically about selling everything you can extract from the earth, <laughs> and that's about it so far as I know. But Yeah, I think that's a fair That's assessment. really cool. <laughs> So what made you decide to stay in geosciences as opposed to going on to be a boring old economist? <laughs> well, I, I think that uh, ultimately I found economics to be really interesting and really valuable and something that I really like learning about, but not really something that I was interested in applying. Um, and so studying uh, novel concepts in geoscience struck me as maybe a little more interesting than diving into the more politicized world of economics. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that's a loaded statement right there. Um, <laughs> I think that's interesting and something that we should point out because John and I have talked on the show before about how important it is to branch out. And he and I both have different backgrounds in addition to geosciences. And so do you, Nick. And do you think that's made you a better geoscientist? Uh, I think it's definitely made me a better uh, thinker. <laughs> I don't know how much it applies directly <laughs> to the geosciences, but I mean, in dealing with a, a subset of geoscience, which has a political component and has a dis, like political decision-making component, um, thinking about these problems from a, a societal impact perspective has been really valuable because scientists have information to provide, but uh, we can taint our message very easily when we make policy prescriptions within our scientific message because people who don't like a particular political organization or group can immediately dismiss your science if they decide they don't like you as a person. And, you know, it, it, it changes the way that I view um, 
the role, my role as a scientist. And Richard, my advisor, has been amazing at this in, in that he goes out and he can come across as the most objective person I've ever met in the world of climate science. And, and it's a, something that I aspire to be able to do. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a really hard, <laughs> that's a really hard thing to do is to project objectivity, especially in that loaded climate science atmosphere. Yeah. And, and, you know, kind of getting more back to your original question of, do I think it has made me a better scientist? You know, it, I, I wonder about this when I teach students you know, how many of them are going to go on in the geosciences? And it's probably a pretty small fraction. But I think that no matter what they do, they're a more informed and, you know, a, and a more informed citizen and a more interesting person for having taken geoscience classes. And I feel like the, the more you branch out, you know, the, the more interesting you can be and the more understanding you can be of other subjects that are maybe not your core discipline. I think Carl Sagan would absolutely agree with you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's that's a really great, great way to put it, Nick. And another thing that I think we've touched on in one of the past episodes, maybe, that's especially important for your field is not only being objective, but being able to quantify uncertainty in a way that is meaningful to the public. Yeah, and I think that's particularly hard. And my uh, <laughs> so the my suggested paper for Friday, Fun Paper Friday, um, kind of gets at that question of, you know, how do you deal with low probability, high impact events? And the world of climate science is filled with these. I mean, uh, Richard often gives a talk that's called the long tail of the dragon. That's talking about the probability tail that extends out to, to really low likelihood, but really, um, you know, dramatic consequences. Because in the world of climate modeling, we have uh, projections, some number of projections that say nothing's going to happen, and some number of projections that say, you know, there's going to be widespread famine and lots of very significant human impact. And in all likelihood, what will happen is somewhere in between. But how do we deal with the fact that, you know, there's this extremely low probability of an extremely high risk situation? And how do you communicate that to an audience that's not particularly well versed in probability theory? Yeah, that's, that's the million dollar question. And I know it's something that as meteorologists, we deal with on the short term, all the time. I think Shannon, can speak to that as well as all the people in New York after last week's. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. yes, exactly. Uh, we got some pretty wild weather here in Oklahoma, and you know, trying to convince people once you've busted a forecast that it's different this next time and save a lot of lives is actually very hard. Which goes back to our fun paper Friday too, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> yeah, and that's. Uh, I mean, these are two different timescales, but it's the same problem, uh, the meteorological timescale and the climatological timescale. Exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. But so, Nick, tell us a little bit about your current research, what specifically you're working on. So I use radar to understand the, the Antarctic ice sheet specifically, the West Antarctic ice sheet. And um, the reason radar is valuable is because there's a lot of information that's required for accurate predictions of what's going to happen to the ice sheet that uh, you can only get, well, yeah, let me take a step back. There, there are a bunch of variables in the ice flow equations that rely on information from the subsurface. Like what are the frictional characteristics of the bed that the glacier lies on? What's the temperature profile, the depth temperature profile through the ice sheet? Um, you need to know a bunch of stuff that we can't easily observe from the surface with our own eyes. And so we can use radar to get information about the subsurface and the end glacial environment 
um, through interesting signal processing techniques. So one of the things that I'm looking at now is um, when you drag a radar along the surface or you fly it over an ice sheet, you get a bunch of radar reflections that come from the interior of the ice sheet itself. If there are dust layers from volcanic eruptions or fabric contrasts or, or um, air, air pockets or things in the near surface that, or even at depth that provide enough dielectric contrast that there will be a radar reflection, we see those. And it gives us a picture of the geometry of the interior of the ice sheet. So there are crazy folds and all kinds of structures that you can see. And we're trying to use the geometry that we pick out from these radar profiles to try and infer where the bed underneath the glacier must be hard and resistant to flow, or where it's weak and soft and allows easy ice flow. Because ultimately, um, the properties of the bed are what's going to allow the ice to flow out from its interior to the ocean, where it melts and contributes to sea level. So you're trying to address with kind of a uh, remote sensing perspective what's causing the ice flux to be what it is and how that's going to change with time? Yeah, that's right. So uh, um, there are certain things that you can observe from satellite-borne platforms, like where the ice surface is or how fast the ice surface is moving. But anything that's going on below the surface, you have to get from um, nearer uh, geophysical observations. And so we go in and we try and use information that we can get from these geophysical tools to figure out what the physical properties are and how that will likely affect the evolution of the ice sheet itself. So that's really great. And can you give us some idea of how deep uh, with this radar are you looking? Are you looking at you know a few kilometers or tens of kilometers? Yeah, so uh, the ice sheet at its thickest is about four kilometers thick. And uh, the radar isn't good at penetrating below the substrate. So effectively, we're looking from wherever the platform is, which could be a kilometer in the air if you're airborne or on the surface of the ice sheet, down to at most about four kilometers. Okay. So you can actually go to the base of the ice sheet, essentially. Then. Yeah. It, so it turns With out this. ice is relatively transparent to the frequencies that we use in these radar. Um, water okay. is is known for being uh, not transparent except in optical frequencies and even then you can only see through a certain area but thankfully at, at the the three megahertz to uh, you know gigahertz frequency range which is what we use for these radar we can see through the ice bright and clear so at that high frequency you've got pretty fine resolution in the ice right I mean you're looking at uh, what centimeters to meters yeah so it you use a different radar depending on what your objective is. Um, the, the power loss increases as a function of frequency, the, the rate at which the signal attenuates in the ice. And so if you're interested in, say, annual snow layers or the top you know, 20 meters of ice uh, or of snow or, or of fern, depending on what you're interested in, then you use these high gigahertz frequency radars. Uh, for the deep sounding experiments where you're interested in the bed of the ice sheet, uh, you use something from the the three uh, megahertz range up to about three hundred megahertz range, and the bandwidth of your radar actually is what's really controlling your resolution in that situation. So the, they typically, well, the radar that I've used most is a hundred forty to one hundred sixty megahertz airborne radar. Okay, so you've used a lot of airborne data, but what about? Uh ground-based data. Didn't you collect some of that recently? <laughs> so we tried to collect some of that recently. Um, 
we uh, yeah so the group at penn state often uses a, a three megahertz radar on the ground that we drag behind a snowmobile um i was in the field in antarctica this last field season from uh about the end of november to the end of january and we uh attempted to collect some radar data however we were having some instrument issues that <laughs> that ended up resulting <laughs> in not much radar data collection which was a little unfortunate uh before we get any more into that nick i have some questions for you just on the geological side because i love to talk about fern and the differences between <laughs> that and just you know regular ice could you maybe for our listeners that aren't familiar with that kind of explain why you need different frequencies for the different types of ice and what those different types are. Okay, so uh, the Antarctic ice sheet is a big pile of ice, but at its surface, uh, you're just raining down snow like anywhere else. And as that snow buries itself, the ice goes through uh, crystallographic changes. So when it starts, it's these beautiful little ice crystals, um, just like the snowflakes you see, uh, you know, wherever you are, where it's snowing here in the U.S., but as, as it gets subjected to the pressure of this overburden, as more and more snow accumulates, uh, it changes. And it tends to break into a, it down into a much denser material. And eventually, it ends up as glacial ice, which is um, it's like 900 kilograms per cubic meter, or I think is the, about the density. And between snow, which is 300, and ice, which is about 900, uh, it, it goes through this transitionary period, which we call fern. And uh, basically, it's it, when it starts out, it's a very porous, permeable area where uh, air is interchanging with the near surface. It's getting into the snow. And when it ends up, it's, it's solid, but you have air bubbles actually trapped inside of the ice. And when they talk about climate records from ice cores, uh, what they're looking at is trapped gas in this glacial ice that's been subjected to so much pressure that all of the air that was in pore space gets closed off and sealed. So uh, the, the primary difference between snow, which is at the surface, and glacial ice, which is at the bottom, is density. Um, the reason you need different frequencies of radar is uh, for several reasons. John pointed out one, that the higher frequency... Uh, radar tends to have higher range resolution, so you can distinguish between right. individual layers much more cleanly in high frequency. But also, uh, in order to penetrate really deeply, you need um, energy that's not going to get lost at all of these interfaces and lost in all the different things that are being picked up through transmission. And so lower frequency tends to be able to penetrate through the fern into the glacial ice very nicely. Because I imagine at four kilometers, you've got a lot of different layers of this type of ice going on right so you want to be able to see through all of that without too much attenuation so you can get at the base yeah right? that's exactly right excellent um so now you you've got this radar you're in antarctica how do you even get there because <laughs> i imagine it's quite a challenge right <laughs> yeah and you know antarctica is also a very big place so there are places in antarctica <laughs> that are easy to get to and well relatively speaking um so okay the adventure for me started in state college so state college i got on a plane and flew State College to D.C., D.C. to L.A., L.A. to Sydney, Australia, and then Sydney to Christchurch, New Zealand. 
So wow. you you arrive <laughs> you arrive in in uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, and they give you a night to adjust. So they put you up in a hotel. You sleep well. By they, I mean our Grant puts us up in a hotel, um, and then you go to this place called the CDC, which is the Clothing Distribution Center, even though even saying it now, all I could think of was Center for Disease Control. Um, and Right, exactly. <laughs> and, which you probably had to get shots for that anyway. Oh, you know, yeah, there's a whole physical... <laughs> you, you, you go through a battery of physical tests before they even let you come down. So, so you get to the CDC where they... Uh, give you most of your cold weather gear, your emergency cold weather gear, um, but also a bunch of kind of day-to-day clothes, uh, fleece pants and wind pants and, you know, all of the kind of nice necessities for when you're going out into an extreme environment. And then uh, you spend another evening in Christchurch, and then the next morning you get on an LC-130, which is this awesome old military cargo plane, uh, and you sit down in your little uh, netting seats and you fly for eight hours until you're in McMurdo. (laughs) So there's no in-flight meal or... So actually, they gave us these sandwiches as we got on the plane that were maybe the most disgusting things I had ever eaten. (laughs) But you still ate them. Yeah, because it was eight hours and I didn't bring anything else. See, if you were flying with John, you never would have even made it that far. His luck is so awful with planes. (laughs) The fact that you made it further than State College is amazing to me. (laughs) Uh, So so then you're in McMurdo, which is the American base, the the primary American base on uh, Antarctica. And it's actually quite a little mining town. <laughs> That's what it seems like. There is no mining that goes on. It should be clear. Um, but it's... it's Just data mining. Yes, that's right. Um, and, and actually, you know, according to the Antarctic Treaty, everything that we do as a, a, uh, someone who signed it um, has to be in the pursuit of science in Antarctica. You can't be there for other oh, wow. reasons. Uh, wow. And so it's crazy to me that all of this infrastructure, during the summer there's about 2,000 people in McMurdo, a little bit less, but um, all of the infrastructure is there in the pursuit of science, which is pretty cool. Um, so, yeah, there, it's, uh, it's a pl- McMurdo is a place where kind of all of the logistic support as well as the scientists who are coming in and out uh, are stationed. And when we arrived, we had about two or three days of cargo management that we had to do and then we just wait around for a plane which basically means you nap and then you go to a meal and then you nap and then you go to a meal and then eventually they'll call you to fly somewhere um we had a scheduled so first of all we were going to uh waste divide waste stands for west antarctic ice sheet and the divide is the place where ice flow is split from basically traveling uh eastward to traveling westward in west antarctica And so it's basically smack dab in the middle of the ice sheet. And we were scheduled to fly out on a Tuesday. And they called us. We waited. They said the flight's canceled. So Wednesday morning, they called us. We get there. They tell us the flight's canceled. So then we spend that day eating more meals. And then Thursday, they call us. And the flight's canceled. And so finally, Friday. This sounds familiar. (laughs) Yes. And even more so than in state college, this is absolutely the status quo in in McMurdo. Um, 
And so, so is it a weather delay or why, why does this always happen then? So yeah, it's weather has to be good in both places in where you're uh, going and where you're coming from. And waste divide is uh, notorious for having bad weather. And actually the the plane that dropped us off um, got us there. There was another plane, I, I think two or three days later. And then after that, there were three and a half weeks where not a single flight could get in. And (laughs) <laughs> During that time, there were other scientists who had intended to be at Waste Divide. And for example, there was a flight of people who were supposed to come out like five days after us. They didn't get there until about four weeks after us. Wow. So you've never had that kind of problems yet, John. <laughs> no, no, never weeks. <laughs> and, and you know, it was actually, I can imagine being in their position would be incredibly stressful because they they were trying to use the borehole at Waste Divide, which I'll talk about uh, further a little bit later. But there was a person from uh, the drilling organization who was responsible for operating the winch that sent instruments down and brought them up from the borehole. And he was basically scheduled to leave at the time that those people actually made it out there. And so they spent four weeks oh. twiddling their thumbs for the potential that their projects would just be totally canceled. Wow. Uh, does, that, does that happen a lot then? So, you know, going down there, I found that to be amazing that they were stuck. And I was like, man, that's so horrible. But uh, yeah. every time I, I said that to someone who had more Antarctic experience than myself, they'd be like, well, you know, this happens. <laughs> <laughs> So this was your first time down on the ice? Yeah, this was my first time down on the ice. I was scheduled to go last year. Um, unfortunately, the government shutdown took, happened at about, the U.S. government shutdown happened at about the worst possible time. <laughs> it happened right at the transition from Antarctic winter to Antarctic summer, when all of the infrastructure for deep field camps is supposed to be being set up and deployed. And instead of putting all this time into putting out equipment, they pulled most of the people off of Antarctica. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, so the government shutdown really kind of destroyed last year's Antarctic summer field season. And like you said, there are 2,000 people there, so that's a lot of science that doesn't get done because some lawmakers can't agree on some stuff. That's pretty unbelievable. Yeah, I should also, I should clarify. So the 2,000 people that are there are scientists and support and the overwhelming number of people who are there are the actual uh, uh, contractors, the people who, you know, drive heavy machinery and make sure that the camps are properly set up oh. and ship our cargo. Um, but that being oh, okay. that being said, there are, there, you know, there are these long-term, like, penguin population studies and, you know, 10-year inventories of data that had re- mm. could really be screwed by uh, missing one field season. Oh, uh, yeah, that's unbelievable. But we made it down on on this project this year, so at least our science wasn't, uh, well, (laughs) the potential for our science to go well wasn't destroyed. (laughs) (laughs) So what happened uh, once you got there? What experiments were you trying to accomplish this year? So the primary experiment that we were going down to do uh, was attempting to use seismic data to infer the temperature profile of the ice. And the way that this was going to work is uh, an ice core was drilled at waste divide. So there is a, you know, 10 centimeter borehole that goes from the surface all the way down to effectively the bed of the ice sheet. And we were going to send a seismometer down in that borehole, station it at several different depths, 
and then set off explosives at the surface so that we could um, send seismic waves from a known location at the surface to a known depth in the ice sheet. And based on the length of that ray path, we were hoping that we could back out what the attenuation of the seismic signal was and correlate that with the known temperature of the ice sheet as measured in the borehole. Okay, so this is kind of like an AVO study, but vertically. That's right. It's an AVO without the actual reflection. You're just going straight to the point that you're trying to image. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Yeah, so that was the primary experiment. We also had, a f we, we were going to do a radar AVO uh, with a bi-static radar. Um, there were some surface seismic surveys that we were going to do looking at uh, fern densification using shallow refraction techniques to try and image the near surface fern. Um, but the primary objective was this downhole seismometer work. Could you just like describe for us what that looks like? So you're you're standing on this borehole, but I I mean I know what a borehole is. I worked in the industry, but what does it look like in Antarctica? Like, <laughs> are you right on the ice? Like, <laughs> I need a I need a vivid mental image of what you're doing. Okay, so in order to give you a vivid mental image of the borehole, we have to go back in time about. Uh, eight years to the start of the drilling process. So eight years... Uh, on the same borehole? On the same borehole. Because they, they're... <laughs> oh my goodness, okay. They're extracting core, um, and drilling for core is complicated enough, but in Antarctica, uh, the logistics of doing it can be uh, a challenge. Right. So it's something like 2007. They went to this site at Waste Divide, and they built um, a metal arch. It's basically a Quonset hut um, on what was then the surface of the ice sheet. And in that arch, they had all the drilling equipment and they set up this nice, beautiful drill that could extract three meter cores and they start drilling. Well, come 2015, there has been 30 feet of snow accumulation and <laughs> this arch is now fully buried. Um, and so every year they go in and they dig out a giant ramp down to the door of where the arch is located. Um, so we had access to the interior of this building where the top of the borehole is open. Um, however, in order to send our instrument down, we had a winch at the current snow surface that goes over the roof of the arch and there's a hole that's been cut into the roof of the arch uh, that we lower the instrument through, down through the building into the borehole. So an additional 30 feet. Um, it's, it's quite an interesting place, especially because this metal structure, which is now buried under 30 feet of snow, is starting to buckle under the weight of the overburden. So oh, no. the, the floor <laughs> is all wavy and slick, and there's this like 20 meter trough that you can fall into where the borehole is located. It's quite an interesting place. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that that sort of lends to the feeling you know i'm constantly telling my classes that you know geology is really dynamic and just to think about you know since 2007 you said yeah 30 feet i mean <laughs> that's a lot of that's a lot of ice accumulation for the well and yeah i mean it is and this is an area of not particularly high ice accumulation in antarctica oh wow <laughs> wow okay i don't think i really understood how dynamic that Antarctica was then, because that's impressive. Well, it's important to remember that snow that accumulates at the surface, like I said, is, is about 300 kilograms per cubic meter density. And by the time it's fully buried, it's uh, triple that. And so you, <laughs> so the actual height of snow that you get condenses down to just centimeters of ice. 
Right. Yeah, that's true. But wow, that's still a lot of accumulation. <laughs> could you hear the structure when you were near the borehole? Like, could you hear the ice? I'm assuming you could hear the ice all over the place, right? What do you mean by hear the ice? Like, like creaking and uh, you know, moving. A- actually, it's surprisingly not too bad. Um, really? Yeah, you, you don't really hear it. Uh, the The building has kind of reached its equilibrium <laughs> with the current load. <laughs> Well, that's comforting, I guess, when you're standing around it and winching your super expensive seismometer down a 30-foot hole. Uh, yeah, to get but to the... by the end of the experiment, we were ready for that instrument to be uh, crushed by the ice. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm an instrumentation person, right? And <laughs> you just hurt ha- his feelings. <laughs> how do you uh, how do you put this instrument down the borehole and then get any kind of reasonable coupling? Yeah, so yeah. it has this little mechanical lever arm that when you get it to the depth of interest, you flip a switch and it extends its arm and pushes out against one side of the borehole. Ideally, um, coupling the entirety of the borehole instrument, which looks kind of like a torpedo, to the other side of the borehole. Um, and th- so two years ago, the same instrument was brought to Waste Divide and they tried to do this experiment and this arm failed. Basically, in the extremely cold environment, the the little walls that were right next to the arm had contracted just enough that it, it held the arm in place, and so it wouldn't extend. Um, so there, there wasn't good coupling two years ago, and we were sent down to try and recreate this experiment, this time with a functional lever arm. And so did the arm work okay this year? Yeah, the arm worked. <laughs> um, the, oh, no. The, the geophone inside the seismometer, however, was less functional. <laughs> now, it, So did, did you get any signal from it? So I would say uh, my, my answer would be no. Uh, there are things that it claimed were signal that would come through. When we pulled the instrument out of the borehole and we would do stomp tests right next to it, we would set it up, we would stomp on the ground. You could see a signal, but by the time you had moved the instrument, you know, several meters away and you stomped, nothing would come through. And this thing is supposed to be picking up tiny, tiny vibrations. And so, you know, a 160-pound guy stomping about five meters away should be sufficient for it to detect. Um, what What's particularly unfortunate is that um, in all likelihood, there was a loose wire or some some hardware failure inside the case of the downhole seismometer that if we could have reliably opened it up and sealed it back up again, uh, we could have fixed. But we're sending this, this borehole instrument down to the bed of an ice sheet at pressures of, you know, at, at very high pressures, the entire overburden of the ice sheet is applying pressure down there um, in an extremely cold environment. And so this has to be a pressure sealed vessel and we weren't convinced that we could open it up and close it uh, in a way that would still allow it to travel down to the borehole, the bottom of the borehole alive. <laughs> That's a lot of traveling to get there and only record things, you know, within like a five inch annulus from this <laughs> borehole, right? Like I can't even imagine, like I'm mad when my computer fails and I have to, you know, redraft a graph, but to have gone that far and not be getting reliable data, that must be super frustrating. Yeah, it, w- it was frustrating, but what it, it meant is that we just had to adapt on the fly. So we 
took the original experiment and we did as much of it as we could without the borehole seismometer, which as it turns out was something. Um, we turned it into a traditional AVO, which John had kind of alluded to. Yeah. Um, we, we took seismic measurements at about the borehole in three different orientations to see if we could use internal reflectors that we see in the seismic data to do a very similar analysis. So when we actually process that data, hopefully uh, um, something akin to what we had hoped to do will come out of it. So what did you use for your surface instruments then to do your AVO study? Yeah, so we have these nice uh, uh, strings of geophones that um, connect through uh, something called a geode into your laptop that, that effect, effectively act as vertical single component seismometers. Um, and we used those in conjunction with uh, Penn State developed instrument that's called a georod that has three individual geophones coupled together along um, a, a, basically a wooden pike that you can orient in whatever position you want. So if you wanted to have some vertical, some horizontal components, you could do that. But um, Penn State developed these because they improved the signal-to-noise ratio of surface detection. And so we let, we the way these experiments work is first we drill a 20-meter hole uh, using a hot water drill that we put an explosive in. And then we go out and we lay a kilometer of this cable along the surface and every 20 meters we dig a little two-foot hole that we put a geophone or a georod in, bury it, and then set off the explosive. And the signal will cascade along our array and will be stored in these geodes and transferred to the computer. Wow, so that's uh, quite a bit of work. <laughs> yeah, so for every, for every new location we want to collect data, it, it's uh, probably half a day of moving the cable, digging holes, burying instruments, and then backfilling those holes. So this sounds exactly like what you would do if you're doing a seismic experiment back here in the States, except for you've got ice. But it sounds like the exact same workflow, the exact same instruments and everything. So that's kind of that's neat that they're taking, you know, it's the same technology to get at a totally different sort of scientific answer and you know i'm thinking of course about the oil field and how we use seismic and these borehole seismometers to monitor oil field drilling but it sounds like it's sort of the same thing yeah in principle it, you know it's just subsurface imaging and whether or not you're looking at the bed of an ice sheet or you're looking at some hydrocarbon reservoir it's the technology is the same great so are these like you know 10 hertz sensors pretty high frequency or are you looking a little bit lower um so we are, the, the seismic energy comes in from very low frequencies, uh, like one to two hertz, up to about 200 hertz. Um, and the, the actual frequency response of these geophones, I'm actually not certain of. Um, I was there as the radar man slash shovel hand. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Kaya, the one who is leading the seismic half of the experiment, is the one who's dealing with all of that seismic data. Oh, okay. So you said you were the radar man. Uh, <laughs> what about using radar this year? So <laughs> I failed in my task as the radar man. <laughs> no. Okay. I hope you shoveled well. I did shovel well. Yeah, this is just a, a year of instrument failure, it seems. Um, so I was using a homegrown Penn State radar system, which 
uh, has been in development for a while that's trying to replicate a, a 3 megahertz radar that is from St. Olaf College in Minnesota that we have often co-opted for our own use. But Shridhar wanted to have our, uh, our own instrument that we could take out in the field. So this instrument has been taken out several times, and everyone who I've talked to has said, good luck. <laughs> Um, I went out with uh, much more optimism than the people who I had spoken with. And from a software perspective, the the radar seemed to be working just fine. Um, All of the data collection side of things was up and running. The gauge card, which is is the data acquisition system, seemed to be up and running. But when we actually got out there and we set up our pulsar. So we have this 20 uh, kilohertz pulsar that we put at one end attached to two antenna. And then we have our receive end, which is a computer with a digitizer and two radar antenna. Um, We went out, we set it up, and we were getting signals that didn't make sense. Um, We, at first, we weren't sure why they didn't make sense. We thought that maybe the instrument was triggering on noise from, uh, that, some non-transmission noise, because we have this pulsar system, which is theoretically pumping out these high-power, 3 megahertz waves. And ideally, the way the system would work is, when it sees that wave, uh, it starts recording. And the direct arrival from the transmitter will be detected, followed by the subsurface reflectors. So as soon as the direct arrival is seen, it starts listening, recording data for some fixed window of time, and then waits for the next pulse. Well, we were getting kind of nonsensical uh, data coming into the system. So our first guess was that it's triggering on something that is not our transmission. So we tested our generator. We switched to a power inverter and a battery. That didn't work. We switched to a different generator. That didn't seem to solve the problem. So then we started going through every single individual hardware component of the radar. <laughs> Would... So, Nick, did you try putting the radar in a trash can? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was not one of our goals. But, uh, but by the so, I just I hear that works. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, Shannon likes to make fun of my uh, my X-band radar radome that I use here doing uh, precipitation profiling, which is a trash can turned upside down on top of the radar. <laughs> <laughs> Radome sounds so much better, though. You know, Nick's... <laughs> That's how you label it in a paper. <laughs> oh, oh, of course. The trash can is not acceptable. <laughs> uh, next time I'm down there, I will keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've got to do stuff on the fly. Stuff breaks down. You just grab a trash can. It'll be all good. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so you're out there in the field with a radar that's not working. And this isn't exactly... I mean, radars are difficult systems to troubleshoot back here where we've got lots of test equipment and a nice lab space. I can't imagine what it's like trying to troubleshoot a radar when it's very cold and you're probably equipment limited. Yeah, so we had a fun piece of garbage oscilloscope that we were trying to use that (laughs) did not like the cold, which means we could keep it in a warm space and then quickly bring it out to the radar and it would run for like 10 minutes before it stopped functioning. Um, So... So we did that to try and see if there was something wrong in the digitization or, you know, if there's something in the actual radar receive end that was the problem. And we discovered that that wasn't, that wasn't an issue. We uh, went and we took uh, our Balin, which is the thing that does impedance matching between the two halves of our antennas, and uh, hooked it up to uh, a network analyzer that another guy who was in the field from the British Antarctic Survey had, and he was actually very helpful. He was an electrical engineer, 
and um, had a lot of good advice that didn't ultimately solve any problems, but it was good advice at the time. <laughs> um, and so we, we tested all of our components, uh, our attenuators, our amp, everything, and finally we concluded that it was our antenna that were not working. Um, so these antenna are impedance-loaded wires that basically are configured to receive at a given frequency and exclude all of the ringing and noise at other frequencies. And uh, alternatively, you can just lay out a wire of a fixed length that will receive information at overtones of uh, the wavelength that it prescribes. Um, these tend to be very noisy and not quite as effective as these nice impedance loaded um, or resistively loaded uh, uh, antenna. But we were like, what the heck? We've got all of this extra wire that was for detonators for our explosives. Let's, <laughs> let's make an antenna. <laughs> So do you just use like a, a dipole formula, you know, 234 divided by the frequency is the length? Yeah, basically. Yep. And we're, okay. we're using simple dipoles for our antenna for these low frequency cases because they have a nice radiation pattern. Um, we want to try and limit the, you know, the nodes in our radiation because we want energy to come in equally from all areas of the subsurface. Um, and so we, we went out there, we made these antenna, we hooked them up. When we finally got the whole system working, our pulsar stopped working. <laughs> and by that point, I was deep enough in a depression that that was the end of the uh, radar field season. <laughs> So oh, at that wow. point, you're like, why didn't I go into economics? What was I thinking? <laughs> that is exactly right. <laughs> so, I mean, it sounds like that even though you had trouble getting things to work, it was really a learning experience on what to improve in the equipment and how to make maybe better field studies in the next season. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, so we were a relatively inexperienced field team and you know, this, this, <laughs> this data was something that I, that would be nice in the context of my dissertation, but wasn't necessary. Um, and it was just supposed to be a side project relative to the main experiment that we were conducting. So I went down with high hopes, but mainly with the expectation that I would learn a lot about field work. And I did. So in that sense, it was a success. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's excellent. Um, it's really neat to hear all these same things. John, this is what we need to be doing with our meteorology background, I think, right? Yeah, I it's think just so. The same exact science, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in a much cooler place than we're at now. <laughs> so, Nick, I think. We've got lots of questions for you, and I'm sure at some point we're going to have to have you back on to talk more about radar and all of these really interesting things. But we ask you to pick out a paper for our Fun Paper Friday segment, which is everybody's favorite segment of the show. <laughs> so what did you pick yes, for us to read Yes, all five of us. Okay. It's our favorite part of the show. <laughs> <laughs> so... I chose an economics paper, a paper that focuses on behavioral economics. It was actually in a psychology journal um, because I love reading papers like this. If you've ever read, for example, Freakonomics um, or books in that vein, those are kind of uh, case studies that are in the world of behavioral economics. And this is a discipline that uh, is focused on individual decision-making scenarios because in aggregate economics is built on these assumptions that humans are rational and we find that that's rarely the case <laughs> right. um, and uh, it's not an exact science either is that what you're telling me <laughs> yeah well what's interesting is that you know a lot of classical economic theory 
um, still holds because in global aggregate, humans behave according to some reasonable set of rules. But if you ever want to predict an individual's decision or, uh, you know, a specific set of aggregate decisions instead of over long time scales over huge populations, suddenly you have to start taking into account that people make stupid decisions a lot. Um, and so I chose this paper, which um, is called, it was called Dread Risk September 11th and Fatal Traffic Accidents. And it, it, it gets at humans' risk analysis capability. And, and because we're, we are risk-averse creatures, it turns out economists have found that we tend to weigh overweight, low-probability, high-impact events and weigh underweight, high-probability, um, but less-perceived risk events, like driving a car versus flying a plane. And so what they found in this study is that after 9-11, uh, there was a significant reduction in people flying because there was this perceived risk of terrorist attack, of plane crash, of death by flight. And they switched instead to driving, which it turns out has a much higher, uh, probability, uh, much higher probability of death. And so there was this um, huge increase in the number of people who died due to traffic accidents in the three months following 9-11 because people were so afraid of dying in a plane crash. So you can really see this in the paper that... I mean, there is a significant increase in traffic accidents following 9-11. And I know just me, myself, I'm a little scared of flying. And so I can see where I would have taken this thought process as well, even though I try to comfort myself with statistics every time I get on a plane. So this is, I wonder if they've done any animal experiments. Or is this like a human phenomenon that we're risk averse yeah i'm not sure and you know part of it is our our inability to properly internalize statistics <laughs> and <laughs> you know people if if we were perfectly rational we would look at the odds that we die and uh, the penalty associated with death and we would multiply those together and that would be the weight with which the cost that we associate with doing something but the uh, you know that's very clearly not what we do even though economists might argue that's what we we actually do you know the data it seems to to imply otherwise so you know <laughs> this this i think is a great example of what these how we might you know there are things to worry about in climate science because there are these really low probability high risk events and we want to make sure that that we think about them but we don't you know live our lives in a way that that is so geared towards these really low probability events that we uh, hurt ourselves in the preventative action. Well, we can't all be Vulcans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, when you talk about death risk especially, people get a little uncomfortable. Uh, and I, I thought it was really interesting. They pointed out in the paper, they said that, you know, preventing terrorist attacks is difficult and it costs us a lot of money. But they said that avoiding... Uh, kind of this whole psychologically uh, pr provoked toll and these excess deaths could probably be just as hard and just as costly to the government. Yeah, and I think that that's, it's, it's got its own set of challenges. And so uh, when I would fly with my brother, he hates the TSA. He just hates the TSA. And, <laughs> and he, uh, th for a long time when you would fly, you would hear Janet Napolitano come over the loudspeaker and she'd be like, today's terror threat alert is orange. And 
you know, it, it's it, it's information that was kind of meaningless to the common consumer. All it did, in his view, was fear monger, <laughs> and and <laughs> and so you've got to be careful of how you respond to these situations because, like they said in the article, education is really important. You you can't just go out and be like you may blow up in a terrorist attack because that's always the case. Um, and there are people who, who can't properly internalize the, the statistics of the situation to understand what their actual risk is. Yeah, I think that's that's incredibly difficult for all of us, especially when quantifying these risks sometimes is kind of an art in itself. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting to bring this back to climate scientist, science because exactly what you just said, you know, is true. I wasn't really thinking about that when I was reading this paper, but thinking about it now, I mean, and education is key, which is true for so many things in general, but education instead of the fear mongering right. would really go a long way <laughs> in helping people to understand how to read data. Yeah. I mean, when, you know, there is realistic risk in all of these situations and I'm not saying that, you know, we shouldn't be mitigating climate change today. What I'm saying is that we take the actual data and we think about it rationally. And so, you know, our role as scientists is to prevent the, or, sorry, to present the reality of the situation to people who will be making policy. And all we can do is tell them what we know. And once they've got that information, hopefully they make rational decisions about how to prevent that risk going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's a really hard thing is to hand that decision off to somebody that has the power when you just have the data. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So that is our Fun Paper Friday pick of the week. Don't forget to pick your own Fun Paper Friday and share it with us. You can do that with the hashtag Fun Paper Friday on Facebook, Twitter, any kind of social media that you choose to use. So Shannon, do you want to tell the folks where they can get a hold of us if they want to send us any feedback or give us a comment? That's right. So you can leave an audio comment or a plain old word text comment at our website, which is www.don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can find me online at johnrlehman.com or on Twitter. I'm at geo underscore Lehman. Shannon is at Shannon Doolin. And Nick, where can folks get a hold of you if they want to send you any, uh, you know, hate mail over things that we've discussed today? <laughs> well, you, I have a website, but that website should have one of those coming Christmas 2018 uh, flash pages instead of what it actually has on it. Um, uh, but you feel free to email me at ndh147 at psu.edu. All right, great. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to leave us with? Glaciology is great. Antarctica is great. Everyone should go. Actually, no, that's not true. <laughs> Antarctic tourism is a bad thing. Uh, do some science. Become a scientist and go to Antarctica. All right. Thanks for joining us, Nick. And thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.